Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels Podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December, but what really counts is let me see this in January. The Sports Rebel Without a Pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I gotta call it as I see it, he is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the J. Rills Podcast. Welcome aboard. Greetings, my good people. What is happening? What is going on? How's everybody doing out there? What is the latest and greatest? Hope everybody's well. It's a new day, a new week. Ten days away from Thanksgiving. Two weeks away from December. Six weeks away from a new year. But first, let's take a collective deep breath. Exhale. Because as much as we want to punt 2020 into oblivion, we know that we cannot rush time. We must take it day by day. So with that said, map plan and execute as best as you possibly can so we could go into 2021 with that mindset to kick ass take names take no prisoners because we all know tomorrow's not promised so why push it off into the new year why get into that mindset of uh i just don't want to do it uh it's been a terrible year uh i don't know what else to do no no scratch that out let's start right this second people write down those goals get moving get it on and popping and as i like to say go out there and get it Glad that you're here with me now because you're going to get everything that's happening in the sports universe through my lips and to your ears here on the latest edition of the J Reels podcast. This is your host, J Reels. For my first timers, welcome aboard. And for those who have been banging with me for now, 164 episodes, I welcome you guys back. It is a Monday, November the 16th in the year of our Lord, 2020. If you haven't done so, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast with all the others that are out there on Apple, Google, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Luminary. Amazon Music, I'm out on all major platforms, people, so please go ahead and do so. I would greatly appreciate it. The J Reels What's the Deal segment. What's expected on this podcast is as follows. It took a while for Dustin Johnson to win his second major, but he did it in historic fashion, blitzing through Augusta, winning the Masters, and the coveted green jacket. I'll get into his epic performance, a couple of surprises at the top of the leaderboard, Bryson DeChambeau imploding, Tiger Woods unable to defend his championship from last year. All of everything that's happened over the weekend you'll get later on. College football was very quiet this week with 15 cancellations due to COVID. But we have a big game coming up this weekend between Indiana and Ohio State. And yes, it's not a college basketball game. It is for college football supremacy. Well, maybe not that strong, but you get it as we get deeper into this college football season. In the NBA, the trade rumor mill is percolating. With news coming out of Houston that the potential and possibility of James Harden coming to Brooklyn to be a part of the Nets. If I was a Net fan, I would despise that move with every fiber of my being. And there are three reasons why. You definitely don't want to miss out on that later on. The NHL with Gary Bettman mulling realignment in light of everything that's happening with COVID in this country. And of course, our brothers from the north in Canada. Baseball, are you into the MLB awards that took place? I'm not. You know you get my two cents on that and everything that's happening in Major League Baseball. Also, my hero and zero of the week. But my theme to kick us off here, in the NFL, we've seen a lot of these big-time teams that had great starts to their years, whether it's Tennessee, Baltimore, even Seattle. They've now come back to the pack. And you got to wonder whether or not the fans in those cities who root for those teams, will there be any Super Bowl aspirations in their future? 
There's still plenty of football to be played. I don't have a crystal ball to say whether or not these teams are going to make it to the Super Bowl, but it's now making a very interesting season as we get that much deeper into an NFL season. I know we're now a little bit more than halfway in to this campaign, and now as we get closer to Thanksgiving and especially even past that, once we get to week 14, to those final four games, and we have plenty of time between now and then, this is where the season really starts to take into shape. All right, so let's get to it. My winners and losers for week 10 in the NFL, which includes a pretty interesting game tonight. Talk about a team that's come back to the pack, that of the Chicago Bears as they host the Minnesota Vikings. So that's going to be a game that could have some implications down the road. Minnesota trying to get their season back on track and a little bit closer to the top of the NFC North and then the Bears, their season's starting to fall apart. So that's one to watch there later on tonight. But winner number one is DeAndre Hopkins and the Arizona Cardinals. I'm sure you've seen the highlight. If you've been hiding under a rock, YouTube it. Go to NFL.com. I'm sure they're going to play it 9,000 times. But to watch that final play unfold, 11 seconds left to go, down 30 to 26. Kyler Murray rolls out left, heaves the ultimate Hail Mary. And the reason why I say that is because not only was he going left against his body to throw this ball, but he threw it into not one, not two, but three defenders. And it's not as if DeAndre Hopkins is Plexico Burris, 6'5", with a wingspan of over seven feet, looking like a giraffe out there. But we all know how great Hopkins is. He found a way to not only get up, corral the ball, and bring it down to the turf as he's being tackled. Touchdown, 32-30, game over. Arizona Cardinals tied for first place in the NFC West with the Seattle Seahawks and also the Los Angeles Rams, which we'll get to in a little bit. Now, all the rage is going to be about Kyler Murray, MVP candidate now, with the miraculous performance there yesterday. It's a little bit premature. we got to pump the brakes on that. There's still seven weeks to go in this season. And not only that, you have Russell Wilson, a guy who I'll get to in a minute, who is the front runner for the MVP. But give it up to Arizona so far, 6-3. and three. Cliff Kingsbury's done a magnificent job there in the desert. And you got to wonder, is this going to be the game to springboard Arizona? I'm not going to say to the top of the NFC conference, but at the same time, you got to look out for them as they're definitely going to be a threat here down the stretch. A lot of these teams are going to play one another in the NFC West, so it's going to be a battle for supremacy here over the last seven weeks of the season. And I'll segue that to the LA Rams being my second winner because after a future game in Miami and having their bye, they came back with a vengeance. They threw everything and the kitchen sink towards Russell Wilson, a guy who right now is not the front runner for MVP anymore. He had his worst game of the year by far, 240-something yards, didn't throw a touchdown, threw two picks, but give it up to the Ram defense. They did a magnificent job coming back from the bye, getting themselves in position to be atop of that NFC West with the aforementioned Cardinals and, of course, Seahawks. So there's going to be a Royal Rumble out there to see who's going to snag that top spot with seven weeks to go. And quickly with the MVP, I'm not big on it. It makes no sense to talk about it now. All the pundits want to get into, well, now this guy's the front runner. No, now he leapfrogged this guy. Uh, I could care less. If you ask me, you got to go to the Super Bowl winning quarterback in Kansas City right now because with the numbers that he's put up, the team is 8-1, 25 touchdowns and one interception. How could he not be your MVP? So let's put that to rest for now as we go across the ledger to the losers of the week. And if you're a fan of the Philadelphia Eagles, you've probably pulled every strand of hair out of your head 
you're scratching, clawing, wondering, banging your head, whatever it is, because this was a game that if you would have won yesterday, you might as well sent the division flag, NFC East champions, down to the city of brotherly love. At 3-4-1, the division is as putrid as it possibly can be. And all you need to know, think about this, people. The Pittsburgh Steelers are 9-0, and they have one less win than the entire NFC East. I mean, put that into perspective. How is it humanly possible that we're into mid-November and the Steelers have almost as many wins as a whole division? And the Eagles yesterday, as I said, they could have locked the division because they would have swept the Giants. They already have a win over the Cowboys. All right, they lost to the Redskins, but the Redskins, they're already out to sea for their 2020 season. It would have been over. And they probably will be one and done come January. But for them to put up that stinker, Carson Wentz, he seems to not be able to take his game to the next level at times. Doug Peterson with his questionable in-game decision-making with the two-point conversion early on, which, all right, did it make sense? Of course, it looks good when he gets his team to 14-11, but then later on the game at 21-17, I I don't understand. I I don't get it. But the Eagles, I I mean, come on, you got to win that game. And give it up to Joe Judge and the Giants. I know I haven't shown them a lot of love this year. But Daniel Jones, he's, he's that tweener guy. He's in between being a guy that could be the franchise quarterback, but he's also a guy that, not to say he's going to be out of the league, but he's not going to be a franchise quarterback. And yesterday, he did a lot with his legs, had a big touchdown run, actually atoned for that 80-yard run that he had in Philadelphia earlier this year. If you remember, he tripped over the 10-yard line. He didn't make it into the end zone. But be that as it may, the Eagles, for a 3-5-1 first-place record, oh, geez, does it get any worse than that? Loser number two is the Baltimore Ravens. And I get the weather was terrible. The conditions were slick. And you figure it would benefit the Ravens a lot more because they love to run the ball down people's throats. They didn't do so last night. Lamar Jackson did get his yards on the ground, but J.K. Dobbins couldn't get going. Mark Ingram only had five yards on five carries. Gus Edwards put up paltry numbers. And Lamar Jackson, who overall did not have a bad game, But for the Ravens to not come out of Foxborough with a victory there yesterday, one of those teams coming back to the pack makes you wonder whether or not this team's going to be built for a long postseason run, even if they do get to the postseason, because right now they are seventh in the AFC and would make the playoffs if the season ended today. But you got to wonder, Tennessee comes into their building this coming week, which is going to be fascinating from that regard, because one of those two teams, not to say it's going to be a loser goes home type of matchup, but very intriguing in the AFC. They're my loser number two, which leads to my third loser of the week, and that is the Tennessee Titans. They could have put a stranglehold on the AFC South. They were already a game ahead of the Colts, and they came off of a loss against the Ravens there just a few days prior to have to go on the road into Tennessee and for the Titans to not even show up. Now, the game was competitive in the first half. I can't get too crazy, but for them to then fall apart there on special teams, getting the punt blocked, Phillip Rivers was throwing the ball all over the lot. Naheem Himes contributed with a couple of touchdowns. Ryan Tannehill, a lot of that magic early on in the season has gone south. Derrick Henry is still getting his yards, but not in big spots. And if you're Mike Vrabel and company, you got to wonder where this season is going because as promising as it was to start off this year, and mind you, coming off of a magical postseason run last year where they went to an AFC Championship game and for them to start off the way they did this year, and now you have to wonder whether or not that the Titans are going to be made for January 
to duplicate the success that they did last year, but this time trying to get to a Super Bowl. But now you're left wondering whether or not that this team is going to be capable of doing so. So that's the theme that I got from this weekend. And there are a lot of these teams that are hovering there in the mix, whether they're teams that have come back to the pack, as I mentioned early on, or even the teams that are now making a bit of a push. And there's still plenty of season to go, people. So I don't want you to think that because these teams that have now shifted gears and have gone into a tailspin that their seasons are over. And that's not to anoint the Miami Dolphins of the world or even the Cleveland Browns of the world to be the world beaters and teams that are going to take over the AFC over the Baltimores and Tennessees of the world. That's not what I'm saying. But you do have to wonder whether or not with all these teams jumbled with similar records, who's going to be the pretender Who's going to be the contender? And that's why this part of the season is fascinating because from now until you get to week 13 or really week 14, when you get to those final four weeks of the season, this is where it's really going to start to take shape on who's going to put their foot on the gas or who's not going to be able to take their foot off the brake. Now, as we go through it, I'm not going to get into Washington and Detroit. I know Detroit finally won a home game this year. Whoop-de-doo, good for them. Great. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that game. Same for Jacksonville and Green Bay. Even though Green Bay was down late, they were down 20 to 17. And that connection, Aaron Rodgers to Devontae Adams midway through the fourth quarter to get the go ahead score propelled them to sweat out a victory there in Green Bay against the quagmire of the Jaguars. We can look at Vegas and Denver. Vegas is another one of those teams at six and three to go along with the Clevelands and even the Miamis of the world looking to make their push as they disposed of Denver there out in their beautiful new stadium. San Francisco, New Orleans. The big news out of this game was Drew Brees getting hurt on a sack there by Contavia Street where it looked like he bruised his ribs. X-rays, MRIs to follow. Who knows if he's going to be out for any significant amount of time. Jameis Winston came into the game yesterday. Didn't really do too bad. Threw six passes, or I believe, sorry, threw 10 passes, I believe was six for 10. Didn't turn the ball over, no touchdowns. So he was able to fill in admirably for Breeze, but we all know the Saints will go nowhere in the postseason without Breeze. And as we've seen over the last couple of years, losing in the championship game, not their fault to the Rams. And then last year in the first round to the Vikings, they're not an automatic to get to the Super Bowl, even with Breeze at the helm. But we all know Breeze is going to take them to bigger heights as long as he's healthy and in the lineup. So that was the big news out of there. But they beat the Niners 27-13 to down in the Superdome. Tampa and Carolina, this was actually a game in the first half as it was tied 17-17, but then the Brady-led Bucks took over, throwing three touchdowns over 300 yards. Big story out of this game was Teddy Bridgewater hurting his knee. Who knows what his status will be moving forward. Now Carolina, they're not going to have a big season as we know, but they've been competitive in these games for the head coach there and rookie Matt Rule. But Tampa did what they needed to do after that embarrassing performance there Sunday night against the Saints the week before. So they get back on the right track. Houston and Cleveland. What's there to discuss here? The big news, if you're a gambling man and had the Browns at three and a half as a favorite, was Nick Chubb getting the ball there with, I believe, about a minute and change to go. He runs up the sideline. And then what does he do? He doesn't go for the touchdown, which would have rejoiced everybody, not only just in Cleveland, but all the gamblers throughout the country. But he steps out of bounds at the one-yard line. Now, why didn't he just take a knee at the two or at the five, which still would have been bad enough for the 
person or persons out there who did root for the Browns or bet for them, I should say. But he stops the clock. Now, granted, Houston didn't have any timeouts. I get that. But that was just a bonehead move on his part. But this is why I don't gamble. This is why I don't get involved in fantasy or any of this other nonsense. Because Nick Chubb semi did the right move because he should have just downed the ball, let the clock run, and then taken one more knee and go home. But for anybody who wants to get wrapped up in that game, that was more from a gambling perspective. But the Browns were not impressive in the game. Baker Mayfield was pedestrian. Chubb had the big yards, as we saw. So the Browns get their record to 6-3. and three, And the Texans, man, I'm sure they just cannot wait for this season to end as they are now 2-7. and seven. To stay on the 6-3 and three team ledger, Dolphins winning in South Florida against the LA Chargers, a matchup of the number 5 and 6 pick overall in this past year's draft with Tua Tagovailoa and Justin Herbert. Not the air display that we thought we'd see between the two quarterbacks, but the Dolphins were able to prevail 29-21. They've won five in a row right now, 6-3. and three. And with Buffalo's loss yesterday, they're just a half game behind them, or really a game behind because they did lose to them head-to-head early on in the year in week two. But the Dolphins are now have their sights set ahead on a possible division berth. Again, plenty of time and plenty of football to be played between now and then. And Tua, as a starter, is now 3-0. And the Dolphins are flying high there in the AFC East. And lastly, the Steelers, 9-0. They beat the Joe Burrow-led Cincinnati Bengals, 36-10. Pretty much did it without breaking a sweat. Ben Roethlisberger, 27-46, for over 300 yards, four touchdowns. Pretty much had the game in control, even with the Bengals... Making it close early. They were up 12-0. Bengals then marched down. They get a touchdown. Then on the ensuing drive, they were able to answer that with a touchdown drive of their own. The game became out of reach after that. And the beat just keeps on rolling for the Steelers. What could you say? But not to throw any cold water. Not to make this out to be a boo-hoo. Breaking out the crocodile tears by any stretch of the imagination. But if you're a Steeler fan, the one thing you have to worry about is this run game. We understand that the Steelers are going to win these games in the air, and we've seen it time and time again, especially if you have number seven there on the center. But over the course of the last three weeks, the Steelers have put up 48, 46, and 44 yards on the ground. And that's not going to cut it when you get to January. Now, I'm not trying to say they got to rush for 150 yards as a team. I'm not trying to say that they got to bring their offense back to the 70 Steelers with Franco Harris. They just need to have more of a semblance of a running game here. And... The game is going to be dictated based on how the quarterback feels and how he plays. And we know that he was in the COVID protocol there earlier on in the week. As it was thought, him being in close contact with Vance McDonald, the tight end, who had to sit out and was in the COVID protocol due to a positive test that he had last Monday. But with Ben being able to perform at the top of his game and his best game this year, and he did get off to a slow start. He was 3-7 for seven to start off the game. I don't know what it is. I guess he's still shaking off some rust. Who knows? Even though it's nine games into a season. But the Steelers right now, looking to head to Jacksonville before Baltimore comes into Heinz Field on Thanksgiving evening. The Steelers are going to lose a game at some point. And to be honest with you, I hope they lose one soon. I don't want them to lose to Jacksonville or to Baltimore. And they do have to play Buffalo after the 10-day layoff from Thanksgiving to the Sunday night game against the Bills, which would be, I believe, December the 2nd. But there's no way the Steelers are going to run the table here. I don't care who wakes up this morning and says, oh, they have a good shot. They play Jacksonville. They play... No, 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 no. The Steelers are not going 16-0, people. 
So let's just put that to bed. But that's to me the only issue that I have with the team right now. And I get to a lot of people listening to probably say, oh, Jay Reels, please give me a break. You're not a no. I don't even want to hear it. Well, I bring it up now because if they do happen to lose a game at some point down the road or even worse in January during the playoffs and Roethlisberger is throwing 50 times and he's throwing into double coverage and better defenses, not to say that there's one great defense out there, but for argument's sake, hey, if he goes up against the Ravens again or goes up against, let's say, Tennessee, and by far, they're not going to be confused with the 85 Bears or the 2000 Ravens, but at the same time, all it takes is just for one game for the offense to not click the way they have been clicking, and you go home. So that pretty much sums up a Week 10 in the NFL. We'll continue to take a look on those teams that have come back to the pack and are trending north, as we talked about earlier. And like I said, these next few weeks are going to shape up this season heading into those final few weeks of the year. And as you know, I'll be here to dissect it each and every week until the end of this football season. As we look ahead to Week 11, your buy teams are Buffalo... And I know I didn't really talk about them that much as far as that loss. And that is a brutal loss. I get it. But they are 7-3. and three. They go into their bye, which is good. So they can kind of shake off the dirt and the just disgust of a loss like that. And who knows? This is going to be an interesting time for a Bills team that either they're going to rise to the occasion after the bye and get back to the way they've been performing early on in the season. Or is this something that's going to sit with them and fester and then who knows? rear its ugly head throughout the course of these next seven weeks. And I think they're going to win the division. Miami may be a little bit of a threat here, but you could see them regressing here a little bit. They've won five in a row. And as we look ahead to this week, they go to Denver, which is should be a game that they could win. Absolutely. But with the mile high altitude, who knows? That's how the NFL is from week to week as we've witnessed it time and time again. Buffalo isn't a team that I'll worry about right now, but maybe be concerned to see how they respond when they come out from the bye the week after next. So we'll certainly pay attention to that. You have the Bears also on a bye, the Giants and the Niners and the Bears, as we talked about earlier. They have a big game tonight. They want to keep pace with the Packers. They're a game and a half behind the Packers as of right now. So they need to keep pace with a win tonight. I can see the Vikings winning. They're a little bit hot right now, especially with Dalvin Cook and what he's done here the last couple of weeks. The way he destroyed the Packer defense two weeks ago and then last week against the Detroit Lions. So let's see what they do tonight as the Bears would love to go into the bye with a victory and again, keep pace with the Packers who they still have two games to play with in this season. Not this coming week. The following Sunday is a matchup in Green Bay between the Bears and the Packers and I believe the last game of the season where the Packers will go to Chicago to wrap up their season. So just something to keep in mind as we move along. Your primetime games are very good this week. Your Thursday night matchup is Arizona and Seattle. Just like I said before, let's start the Royal Rumble of the NFC West right now because your first matchup will take place Thursday night in Seattle. So we'll see how Russell Wilson and company responds after losing two games in a row the way they have with Buffalo and also the Rams there yesterday, and Arizona coming off of that miraculous win against Buffalo, as we already talked about. Your Sunday night game is Kansas City at Vegas. Now, from the start, eh, it doesn't sound great. But remember this. The only loss that the Chiefs have this year is against the Raiders. And if the Raiders could somehow, some way pull out this game, now the Chiefs are coming off a bye, so who knows? They'll be well-rested. Andy Reid, historically, 
has a dominating record off the top of my head. I don't know. I think it's something like 16 and four or whatever it is. But he usually comes out of the bye with flying colors. So it's just something to keep that in mind. But knowing that if the Raiders could steal this game and win, they'll have a tiebreaker advantage, although they'll still be behind in the division. But it could go a long way if they do win this game and get themselves a 7-3 and because they'll only be a game behind the Chiefs if they're able to do so. So that's something to watch for. And then the Monday night game is the Rams at Tampa. And the Rams have made all these cross-country treks. I believe this is the last one of the year. Remember, they had to go to Buffalo, to Miami, to Philadelphia, to Washington, and out of Tampa. So talk about logging frequent flyer miles. The Rams have definitely done so, as well as a couple other teams because the way the schedule broke this year with the NFC West having to play the AFC East and also the NFC East. So that pretty much encompasses the big games this weekend. Other than that, I know I mentioned Tennessee at Baltimore. That's the highlight 1 o'clock game. Both teams 6-3. and three. Both teams trying to just get back on the right track. These are teams that both started out the gate fast. They looked like they were going to be up top there with Kansas City and even Pittsburgh this year. But now that they've taken a couple of steps back, that is going to be a huge game for one of those teams. And the game was in Baltimore, so who knows? A little bit of revenge factor going back to the divisional playoff game last year or really just eight, nine months ago when the Titans went in there and bullied the Baltimore Ravens to a 30-12 to victory. But all the other games on the schedule are just, why even bother? Philly at Cleveland, Atlanta at New Orleans, Cincy at Washington, Detroit, Carolina, Pittsburgh, Jacksonville, New England at Houston, Miami at Denver, the Jets at Chargers, Green Bay at Indianapolis. Eh, I understand 7-2, and 6-3, and three, but still, that's not a game I'm going to jump up and down for. Dallas at Minnesota, and then that pretty much wraps up your week 11 in the National Football League. Now, a couple of things before we move on to college football. One is the owners have come up with a contingency plan with everything that's happening with COVID, and we've seen a lot of stories come from different teams, players, practice facilities having to be shut down, Talked about the Steelers there a little while ago with Ben and Vance McDonald, etc. But the owners came up with a plan that if the season weren't to be completed, especially those teams that are making the playoffs. So if there's not going to be a makeup date at the tail end of the year. So let's say if I'm just going to throw the Titans out there since they were pretty much the first team that was affected when it comes to COVID. Not to say it's going to resurface again, but my point being is that if the Titans only play 15 games and they can't make up that 16th game, then what's going to happen is that they added an 8th team into the mix because if there's a team that's going to be on the fringe or because they didn't complete their season, they want to at least give the benefit of the doubt to that team that was unable to make up that last game. So now you may have 1 through 8 if one of those teams are affected. Now, of course, if the Giants miss a game or the Redskins or a team that's not going to make it to the postseason... If they weren't able to play, let's just say for argument's sake, the Jets and Chargers this week, God forbid anything happens with COVID where facilities have to shut down or multiple players were affected, that game's not going to be made up at the end of the year. Both of those teams are not making the playoffs. So if you have a team that is affected and does make the playoffs, that's where the eighth team comes in, which hurts the one seeds because now you're not going to have a situation where if you're, as of right this second, 
Green Bay, who currently holds the one seed in the NFC, and Pittsburgh in the AFC, they would not have a bye to rest their legs, rest the bodies, get themselves together for a divisional playoff round. They're going to have to play in week one of the wildcard round because of this contingency plan. Let's hope it doesn't get to that point. And I'm not saying that for selfish reasons. I want the NFL. And as we talked about last week, that was my theme to start off the program. How the NFL, by hook or by crook, they're just going to bulldoze through the rest of this NFL season. And it doesn't matter if the top quarterback is out from a particular playoff team in week 15 or defensive player, corner, running back. It doesn't matter. The NFL is going to do whatever it takes to get them through week 17 and to start this playoff on time. Now, can they push the Super Bowl up a week? Can they do certain things? Yes, but they do not want to do that by any means necessary. That's why they've come up with this backup plan just in case if there's a team that's on the fringe or a team that probably would have qualified for the postseason at 16 games but were unable to do so, here's your plan. Am I in favor of it? No, but what are you going to do? And also... I hate to bring this up. 2020 continues to be reckless, relentless, throw in any adjective you want as former Green Bay and Notre Dame great Paul Horning passed away earlier this week. The Golden Boy was 84. We know his resume. Played on those great Lombardi Packer teams of the 60s. Also won a Heisman for a 2-8 Notre Dame team back in 1956. Was a guy that had the presence and the aura of a one Mickey Mantle. Now, did he have his career? No, absolutely not. But of course, when you're dubbed the Golden Boy, I'm sure a lot of people, wherever rooms that he walked into throughout the course of his playing days, everybody just gravitated to. And sadly, he passed away, I believe it was on Wednesday at the age of 84. So thoughts, condolences, prayers go out to the Horning family. And that's what you pretty much have there with football. Now, college football is going to be quick, people. Only because, one... You didn't have a slew of games that were fascinating this week. I mean, are you going to get crazy about USC coming back again in the last minutes against Arizona? Or even Miami against Vatek? I'm not going to dissect and go crazy about those games. I know Indiana has been the story here so far. As we talked about time and time again, this is a basketball school. It's being led by their quarterback, Michael Penix Jr., put up. Big numbers there on Saturday against Michigan State. 24-0 shutout where he threw for 320 yards, two touchdowns. He did throw a couple of picks. But now Indiana, they do not have a big game. They have probably their biggest college football game in as far as I can remember. As they go to Ohio State, to Columbus, to perform on that big stage. And let's see how they do here against the likes of the number three team in the country. If I had to guess right now, If Ohio State blows them out late or ends up winning a game in the 40s, you know, 48-31, will you be surprised? No. But if Indiana doesn't get off the bus and show up in this game, it's going to say a lot. I don't expect Indiana to win. Even if Ohio State was going to Indiana, I still wouldn't think that Indiana will pull off an upset. I think they'll compete, and I think they'll compete in this game. But... I could see this being one of those high-scoring type of affairs. It's going to be throwing the ball all over the lot. We don't know about Justin Fields. We know about their offense. So if I'm the Hoosiers right now, if you're in the fourth quarter and you're within one score, you would sign up for that right now. I would think even if you're one score midway through the third quarter, you'd sign up for that. 
Because as we all know, Ohio State could just turn it on with the flick of a switch. But the rest of college football this past week, had 15 games canceled due to COVID, highlighted by Alabama LSU. Also, Ohio State did not get to play, Texas A&M. Even Arizona State, for those here in the Northeast, Herm Edwards, the former Jet coach, he had come down with COVID. So we wish a speedy recovery for him. And that's all you pretty much have here, people. Other than that, you still have Bama, ND, Ohio State, Clemson are your top four. Followed by Texas A&M, Florida, Cincinnati, BYU. It's pretty much the same breakdown. Miami, Indiana. Florida's outside of the top 10. And hopefully we get treated to a great game. And it's a noon game. It's not a ABC or it's not a Saturday night game. So once you get out of bed, have your breakfast, go for a morning jog. Turn on the TV at noon and you're going to see Indiana and Ohio State. Besides that, you got nothing on the college football docket. Zero. I mean, are you going to be pumped up for Oklahoma State and Oklahoma? Maybe if you live in that state or in that region, absolutely, but not here in the Northeast. So college football has taken a couple of hits here over the course of the last two weeks. And uh, we'll continue to monitor it, people. You know that. And let's hope we get treated to a good game between those two Big Ten foes with the Hoosiers and Buckeyes. All right, now let's turn our attention to the Masters. That's right, Masters. Not Master of Puppets. Not the Master, the movie by Paul Thomas Anderson. The tradition unlike any other, which is usually played in April, but thanks to COVID and the tentacles that he has spread throughout the course of this nation and the world for that matter. We didn't have this tournament until this past weekend. And as we talked about last week, a lot of people thought that this was going to be Bryson DeChambeau's time to shine. Him winning the U.S. Open at Wingfoot there in September. Him winning a couple of other lesser tournaments so far in this golf calendar year. And with all the momentum that was riding on his shoulders going into Augusta, people thought that he was going to be up there with the likes of Dustin Johnson, Rory McIlroy, Justin Thomas, and a couple of other golfers that weren't even on anybody's radar coming into this tournament, which I'll touch on later on. But when we look at the big picture here of this tournament, you had guys like Paul Casey on the first two days being atop the leaderboard as he was after day one. And then day two, you start to get a little bit of intrigue there because even though Tiger, who on his first day, actually matched his best first round ever with a 68, and a lot of people wanting to have Tiger in the mix coming off of the heels of the championship there last year. But when you got into Friday and you looked at how it was shaping up there, even with Justin Thomas, Paul Casey, Dustin Johnson at the top of the leaderboard, and you had a couple of other guys there that people were not familiar with in Abraham Anser and Sung Jae Im. You also had another guy in Cameron Smith who had come out of nowhere and golfers that weren't really familiar to my eye. But then Saturday was when Dustin Johnson, and here's a guy that's won one major and is arguably the best golfer in the world, needed to not say put a stamp of approval on how good of a golfer that he is, but we all know when it comes to majors and top golfers, they're synonymous. Not to say you can't be a great golfer without it, but we all know if you have them in your back pocket, they're going to go a long way. So Saturday was when Dustin Johnson put it into overdrive. And mind you, that even though he put himself 
in a good position where he started off with an eagle. It led him to shooting a three-round record at the Masters, shot 65 overall on Saturday, and had a four-stroke lead heading into yesterday over the likes of the aforementioned Abe Answer, Sung J.M., and Cameron Smith. And I'll get to those guys later on. After the match on Saturday, I tweeted that this was Dustin Johnson's Masters to lose. If he would have come out of yesterday not winning this tournament, you'd really have to question on whether or not he has the mental and testicular fortitude to be that great champion that he should be. And remember, you have to go back to the summertime, the PGA at Harding Park, where Dustin Johnson went into the final day at minus one at the top of the leaderboard to where Brooks Kepka came out and came after Dustin Johnson saying that, and I'm paraphrasing here, that he's not won many majors. He only has one under his belt. And for a guy who gets all this fanfare and all the accolades, you figured you'd expect more out of him. And then Rory McIlroy had to come to his defense. So yesterday, what does he do? He had a little bit of a shaky start and it made you wonder there for a second on whether or not he was going to be able to compose himself to be able to go ahead and not let the pressure get to him, knowing that he was that close to winning not only just another major, but this major. Because we all know the Masters is the Super Bowl of golf. And one thing that you didn't see throughout the course of the weekend, and you wonder if this was the case, being in this COVID world with no fans, if that also would have been a factor. Now, it wasn't a factor at Harding Park, And even though him being at the top of that leaderboard, he certainly did not have much margin for error as he did here yesterday being four strokes ahead as opposed to being one stroke ahead back in July. But when he got to Amen Corner at 15 and he still had a two-stroke lead, what did he do? He rose like the champion that he became just a few minutes later as he birdied 15, 16, 17, en route to shooting 64 for the day. He finished 20 under for the tournament, which broke the record by two shots set by Tiger in 97, which also was the largest victory since Tiger's epic 97 Masters win at five under. He had the fewest bogeys at the Masters overall for the four days at four. An all-time great performance. There's no arguing that who the best golfer is in the world right now, and that's a one Dustin Johnson. He finally gets that second major. And I know a lot of people want to come out today and say, finally, we got the best golfer of our generation right now. Uh, Can we pipe down just a minute here? And this isn't to knock anything that Dustin Johnson did yesterday, has done so far in his career. We know that he's an accomplished winner, and he still has plenty of golf left in front of him. But to automatically say that he's the best golfer of this generation, eh, please. That's just somebody wanting to attach a title next to somebody who came up with an epic performance the way Dustin Johnson did yesterday. So I can't get crazy and wrapped up about that. I mean, people were looking at Brooks Kepka after winning all those U.S. Opens and those top three finishes as him being the guy that was the best of this generation just it seemed like yesterday. And I remember a few years back when Jordan Spieth had his run. Uh, that's another thing where people were like, oh, Jordan Spieth, look what he's done. And it was marvelous what he did. But nobody's calling him the best golfer of the generation. The guy hasn't really even performed at that level going back now two, three years. So for everybody that's wrapped up being prisoners of the moment, 
that right away they have to put a title next to the guy. Yes, is he the number one golfer or the best golfer in the world right now? There's pretty much, there's no debate. You can't debate that. I understand there may be some people in Bryson DeChambeau's camp that will beg to differ or Justin Thomas or Rory McIlroy. I get that. But if you're going to ask me who the best is right now and it's not even what he did yesterday, I still think it's Dustin Johnson. But you got to look at what he did yesterday as the crowning achievement, not only to 2020, but to him being the best in the world. Is he the best of the generation? Uh, Let's slow down now. Can he win a couple more majors before we start putting him up there as the best of the last 10, 15 years? Especially when I mentioned those other guys who have won a hell of a lot more as far as majors are concerned than Dustin Johnson has? That's all I'm saying there. And I don't know what it was about the course or maybe it was the weather because it was seasonably warm down there. We were afraid that we were going to get a lot of rain. A lot of it was due to the remnants of one of those hurricanes that was up the panhandle and to the Georgia region. We saw rain early on there on Thursday, but pretty much from there on out, the rest of the weekend was fine. But I don't know what it was. Was it the warm air? Was the ball traveling a lot better? Were the greens faster? Who knows? Now, you got to take into consideration that the weather in April is going to be a lot different than it is in November. And remember, it is in Georgia. So April, where it starts to warm up and the elements are going to be a lot different than now where the temperature was warm, but the elements are going to start to still be warm before it gets cold. Now, I'm not trying to be a meteorologist here. I'm not trying to be some sort of scientist when it comes to that. But you do have to think about when you look at it from the terms of golf, just like you look at it in baseball. Where in April, balls aren't going to fly out of the stadium if you're playing in the Northeast because it's still rainy, it's cold, it's cool, damp. Whereas you get into the July, August, and the dog days of summer where it's humid and the ball flies out of the ballpark, I would think the same would apply here to golf. Because when you see all those golfers shoot 10 under and a laundry list of them, the first thing that comes to mind, it's either A, the course, or the weather, or the combination of both. Because you saw dominance over the weekend when it comes to these top flight players. I mean, look at Rory McIlroy. He shot a 66, 67, and 69 to close out the weekend. I believe on Thursday, what did he shoot? A 74? So that's why he wasn't in the mix as far as being one of the top guys. But I believe he shot, what, 11 under? You know, John Rahm, Brooks Kepka, Justin Thomas. But how about the performance by Sung J M? Cameron Smith, they both would have been in a playoff if it wasn't for the performance of Dustin Johnson. I mean, think about they both shot 15 under for the tournament. And they were still five strokes behind the leader in Dustin Johnson. So if that doesn't show you how these players brought the golf course to its knees, and right, we've seen dominant performances in the past from the Masters, but not along the likes of nine players being at least 10 under. And I'm not Mr. Golf Historian by any stretch of the imagination. And I've been following the golf and the Masters more passionately over the last 15 years. But I cannot recall these scores and these players being so high up on the leaderboard. But for these guys to perform at this level, you would think that they were playing at a in a bandbox of a golf course. I mean, they didn't bring it to its knees. I mean, they wrestled it to the ground and buried it six feet under. That's how great these guys were. Now, the flip side of that is Bryson DeChambeau, 
who admitted in his post-match way too many mistakes. He left bogeys all over the course throughout the weekend. And that was indicative, as you saw there, on Friday, or excuse me, on Thursday, and then Friday where he triple bogeyed on three, double bogeyed on the, in the first round, and he was nowhere near the guy that we thought we were going to see this weekend at Augusta. And hey, you just chalk it up to poor play, as he did. Just left way too many mistakes out there, did not perform well, was not at the top of his game, and was nowhere near the leaderboard. And as far as Tiger's concerned, talked about him matching his best first round ever. Now, he was in the hunt heading into the weekend. And even into Saturday, he was still in the mix. But it slowly started to slip away. And then on Sunday, yesterday, I mean, what could you say? You're going to look at that 12th hole there in Race Creek where he shot a 10. That's right, a 10. One that I'm sure he would certainly love to forget and probably is doing his best to forget even 24 hours after the fact. But there were three times where he hit the ball into the creek which forged that 10 score there on the 12th hole. And Tiger, who hung in there for two and a half days, wasn't able to be a part of the leaderboard and defend his green jacket from last year. But at least Tiger made the cut and did perform well, had his moments, His putting hasn't been all that great. And we all know Tiger, his strength is definitely in his putting. But give it up to Tiger for at least competing into the weekend. Although he didn't get to Sunday with a lot of the fanfare and the buzz that we would hope to see. Similar to what uh, he did last year. And one last thing on Tiger, which I discovered this past week. And I'll be fascinated to watch. And a lot of people know his story. Going back to as a kid, his father. The champion that he became at such a young, early age to be an all-time great that he is right now, even though he's in the back nine of that. And in the middle of all that, the scandal that took place, which will be now 11 years this coming Thanksgiving, the situation with the car, driving into the tree, infidelity, etc. Well, HBO's going to have a two-part documentary on Tiger in January, which I'm fascinated to watch. We'll see how deep they get into Tiger, his life, his relationship with his father, as it's been chronicled well in the past, but we'll see what this documentary brings, and I'm going to be fascinated to watch that when it airs sometime in January, so just to keep a note on that as we move along. All right, so let's go rapid fire here to close out our podcast, and we're going to start off with the NBA because it's a big week for the league as they have their draft on Wednesday, and I'm not going to sit here and handicap or give any mock drafts. If you've listened to me in the past or if this is your first time, I'm not one to break down every pick or to get into all the ins and outs of what's gone on with these players that are going to be coming out. As we all know, we didn't have the combine. We didn't have any of those camps that led into the draft as we normally get in June. We all know the way the year has gone. And we can't really get a grasp on some of these players. So for those who are thinking that LaMelo Ball is going to be the number one pick. Which he probably could with the Minnesota Timberwolves. But I'm not going to fake the funk and break down every player that's coming out. And who's going to be a sleeper. We all don't know. We could look at LaMelo Ball and a lot of his stock has risen. A lot of stories have come out about him over the last few months with what he's done playing overseas and how that's matured him as a player. And now he's about to embark on an NBA career to follow up with his brother and what he's done there early on. I know he's been off injured, but with the Lakers and now with the Pelicans, a lot of people think Anthony Edwards could be a guy, the guard from Georgia that could be a staple in someone's backcourt for 10 to 12 years. 
Also, James Wiseman, the center from Memphis, the big guy, 7-1. We all know the game is not predicated on big men anymore as far as playing the low block, low post. But if you could defend and rebound, that could certainly be attributes that could go to a team that maybe could build with a backcourt or with a, a wingman that's dominating the game today. Obi Toppin, I know, is an underdog type of guy from Dayton, and they had a big year in college basketball this past year before COVID shut it down. Uh, those are the names that a lot of people are going to look at. As far as the European players, as far as some of these other players from smaller schools, or again, I haven't watched college basketball in forever. And I'm not going to sit here and say to you, oh, look out for this guy, look out for that. I'm not going to do that. Because I'm sure that a lot of other people who may claim to have watched these guys or whatever, we just don't know. We don't. So the one intriguing thing that I'm going to look at here for the draft is what Golden State's going to do with that two-pick overall. Because remember, they pick after the Timberwolves. Are they going to trade that pick? Are they going to bring a big piece to Golden State to try to reclaim some of that magic that they had prior to the bad year they had this year? And of course, with Kevin Durant signing with Brooklyn, we know Steph Curry's going to be back. Obviously, Klay Thompson's going to come back from the ACL. You still have Draymond Green there. Who knows what's going to happen with Andrew Wiggins? Is he going to be part of the team? Is he going to be packaged with that number two overall to somewhere to bring back another guy to be part of that championship mix? To me, that's the most intriguing thing when I look at the draft there Wednesday night. Other than that, I couldn't even tell you. If the Timberwolves draft Edwards, if they draft Wiseman, if they draft Ball, all right, good. Congratulations. Let's see how it shakes out. Then on Friday... Free agency begins in the NBA. And over the weekend, Anthony Davis, with a player option, decided not to forego his final year at whatever he was going to make, $28 million. So he has become a free agent. But we all know, despite him being the top of the free agent class, he is going to resign with the Lakers. So I'm not even going to throw his name in the mix. Some of the other guys that you want to look at. Now, these are guys with player options, so who knows? They may go back to their teams or they may opt out. And it hasn't been reported whether or not that Gordon Hayward of the Celtics, Andre Drummond of the Pistons, DeMar DeRozan of the Spurs are going to opt out of their final deal in order to get that big deal and pretty much will be their last if you're Gordon Hayward or even DeMar DeRozan for that matter. Drummond is still a young player in the league. So we'll see what they're going to do in the coming days on whether or not they're going to stick with their teams for one more year before declaring themselves as an unrestricted free agent or... They're just going to say, the heck with it. I'm going to look for greener pastures and more money elsewhere. Now, as far as the unrestricted free agents are concerned, uh, you can't really get crazy if you're looking at Fred Van Vliet. Winning player, I think he'd be an upgrade on any team, but how much are you willing to pay for a guy like that where you know he's not a franchise guy, he's not a guy that deserves, I believe, max money, Deserves to get paid, absolutely, but are you going to throw four for $140 million at his feet? It's tough if you ask me. Uh, the answer to that is no. Danilo Gallinari, Montrez Harrell, as we all know, six men from the LA Clippers, Goran Dragic, Serge Ibaka, Jay Crowder, Hassan Whiteside, Derek Favors, Marcus Gasol, Tristan Thompson, Paul Millsap. Those are the guys that are the unrestricted free agents where you can make some pretty decent deals. Out of all those guys there, those are more glue guys. Those aren't guys that are going to carry your team anymore. 
when you're looking at the Goran Dragic of the world or Serge Ibaka, those are guys that bring experience, that bring a lot of fortitude, that know how to win. Marcus Sol being another guy who won a championship. Tristan Thompson, of course. So you're not going to break the bank for those guys. You're pretty much going to plug them in with what you have on your team as far as your nucleus goes and hope that they could have some basketball left in their tank to get yourselves to deep into a playoff or even to a championship. And the Lakers are looking to fortify their team with Rajon Rondo probably being one of those players to get a big deal or his last big deal elsewhere. The Lakers are looking to acquire Dennis Schroeder, the guard from OKC, in which they will send Danny Green and their number one pick of this coming year, which is, I believe, 28th overall, to Oklahoma City. So Oklahoma is looking to get more draft picks, more capital. You got to wonder about CP3. I know there were rumors early in the week about him going to the Suns, which to me doesn't make a lot of sense. I don't know how it would match up with contracts and what the Suns will send to OKC. I'm sure it has to be more number one picks. Who knows? But I wouldn't do that if you're Phoenix. But you would think CP3 rumors will start percolating with him maybe going to contending teams. You hear the Lakers possibly to team up with LeBron, but chances are that may not happen. There are rumors about him maybe even going to back to the Clippers to get them over the hump, to get them to a title, to bring his experience, and not only that, but also his leadership and all that he brings to the table as far as being a guy that will run the team and they need, do need a point guard. I mean, they could have Kawhi Leonard, Paul George, etc. but if they were to get Chris Paul there, and again, he's owed a lot of money here over the next three years, so it remains to be seen if that's going to take place. But one thing, if you're a Brooklyn Net fan, that you do not want to see happen is James Harden coming to your team. Now, I've been very critical of James Harden in the past, not because he is not an all-NBA player, not because he's an MVP candidate, not because he's an offensive threat every time he touches the ball. I don't like his step-back three. To me, that's a walk, but be that as it may, If you're a Brooklyn Nets fan, I don't care if you send them Dr. J's old shoes from his days of the ABA. You do not, I repeat, you do not, if you're Joe Side, the owner of this organization, trade for a guy who's going to be A, let's start here, a dominant ball guard when you already have one on the team in Kyrie Irving. So you certainly don't need two of those guys on your team, which we all know James Harden, between him and Westbrook, They're two of the guys in the league that have the ball in their hands the most when it comes to per usage rate, when it comes to the sabermetrics of the NBA. So if you already have Kyrie on the team, why are you going to bring in James Harden? That's number one. Number two, we know he is not a winning player in the postseason. I've gone through a list on this podcast from here to the North Pole of all the foibles of him in the postseason. And I'm not going to go through it now. But if you listen to previous podcasts and if you are an NBA fan, you know what I'm talking about. He is a guy that is not to be trusted in a big spot. So to him to be on this team where you know he's going to want the ball and he's going to have to fight that with Kyrie and you already have a guy in Kevin Durant who's going to want the ball as well, it doesn't make it a good fit, number one. And number two, he's not a winning player. And then lastly, do you want to owe this guy $131 million over the next three years? I don't care if he averages 40 points a game, 11 rebounds and 10 assists. To me, it doesn't matter 
what James Harden does in a regular season anymore. It boils down to what he does in the playoffs. Because he could have those astronomical numbers. He could have the All-NBA nods. He could be the starter on the East in the All-Star game. Let me see him perform on a big level in May and in June. And on the back of his basketball card, it shows that he has not done that. And if he hasn't done that in Houston, why is he going to do that in Brooklyn? Case closed. Now, if you're wondering about Russell Westbrook too, Houston has gone through an overhaul as we know this offseason with D'Antoni not re-upping his contract, Daryl Morey resigning as GM. They bring in the new coach, Steven Silas, who is not his fault. I mean, what are you going to do? He's a young coach, a young guy. The GM, off the top of my head, I don't even remember who the GM is. But Houston's going in a different direction right now. And if you could get those two salaries off your books, you do whatever it takes. But to have two guys, not only Harden, but Westbrook making the same amount over the next three years, and in essence, is owed $40 million a year, uh, how are you going to pull this off? And Westbrook, he's only going to go to a handful of teams. The Lakers aren't going to take him because they're going to have to pay Anthony Davis and they're already paying LeBron. You're going to hear a lot of Nick talk here, which if I'm the Knicks, I wouldn't do it either. Westbrook is 32. We understand the back of his basketball card as well. The MVPs, regular seasons, the triple doubles. I get all that. But he's another one. Come playoff time, he wilts in 70 spots. And if you're the Knicks right now, you're nowhere near from the playoffs. And maybe Westbrook could get you a little bit closer. But if you're the Knicks, do you want to be a little bit closer? Or do you want to be entrenched? To me, Westbrook doesn't make you an automatic playoff team. Now, I'm sure you're probably going to hear a lot with Westbrook or even Harden maybe going to the Sixers because Maury's there. And maybe that team needs a little bit of a reboot, as we've said time and time again. So that could be a possibility. A lot of this will probably take place throughout the course of this week. You're going to hear a lot of rumors, obviously, with the draft and with free agency. So... The NBA, and to think about it, in five weeks, the season begins. So, as we said last week, and we're going to say right now, the sprint to the NBA regular season, which is December 22nd, starts now. Because you're going to have all this pretty much take place between now and right before Christmas. And to get back on the sad news of 2020 relentless report, Tommy Heinsohn, the longtime Boston Celtic, eight-time world champion, two-time champion as a head coach, longtime broadcaster, also in the Hall of Fame as a broadcaster as well for the Celtics, dies at the age of 86. We all know him with his Tommy points when he was on the air. I know the last few years he's only been doing the home games, but he did a lot of those Lakers-Celtic games in the 80s for CBS, teaming up with Dick Stockton. And he's one of those old Celtics, going back to Bob Cousy, who's still with us, Bill Russell, who's still with us, Sam Jones, all those great Celtic teams of yesteryear. Thoughts, prayers to the Heinsohn family. 86, another legend in the world of sports, leaves us. And what more can you say, as we say time and time again. It seems like every podcast, every week, there's one of our legends, one of the greats of the games, always seems to move on to the next stage. And just sad to report. Well, please. Quickly with the NHL Now, they're mulling temporary realignment, and understandably so, with the restrictions in Canada as the government is refusing to have any travel come from the U.S. to Canada due to the coronavirus. And then you also got to wonder whether or not they want to implement some sort of divisional realignment similar to what baseball did with the East, Central, and West. 
Now, they're looking to start their season somewhere around January 1st. That has not been official. And the NHL, they, they're sure they're working overtime to try to get their season, knowing that the NBA, they're already getting ready to start their draft and free agency and their season next month. The NHL can't be too far behind because they do not want to lose any revenue. We don't know about fans in the stands as of yet, but they certainly need to get on the ball. And I know they have been, you would think, because before you know it, as I said at the top, six weeks from now, the new year will begin. So we'll see how that unfolds in the days and weeks to come. And then another sad passing. Here we go one more time, people. Howie Meeker. He won four cups with the Toronto Maple Leafs. Another longtime broadcaster. Canadian icon died last Wednesday at the age of 97. Now, there's nothing good about death, but when you look at Paul Horning, 84, Tommy Heinsohn, 86, and now Howie Meeker at 97, at least they all led wonderful lives, championship lives, all three of them. Thoughts, prayers go out to the Meeker family as he leaves us as well as the aforementioned Horning and Heinsohn. All right, and quickly with baseball, I could not get into the ML Awards last week. And congratulations to all of them. Manager of the Year, Rookie of the Year, Cy Young, and MVP. Congratulations to those guys. But And for people who could say, well, Jay Reels, if you can't celebrate them, then why did you celebrate the Dodgers winning a World Series? It's different. I know that with the way the season broke down and how COVID affected everything, and you could still put an asterisk next to a 60-game season. I get all that. But crowning a champion is much different than these individual awards where does it really matter at the end of the day? No, it doesn't. To me, it's more about the team who won the championship this year in this trying year. And mentally, there will be an asterisk next to it. But if five years from now, if somebody's going to ask me who the 2020 National League Rookie of the Year is, I'll have to go to Google. Because it's not going to mean much. It doesn't mean much to me now, so why would it mean much to me five years from now? And again, that's not to disgrace the award. That's not to, it's just the way it broke down this year. So to Freddie Freeman, I congratulate you. To Jose Abreu, to Trevor Bauer, to everybody. Good for you guys. But I'm not going to take it that serious only because of it's only 60 games. Again, that's like giving uh, an NFL MVP to a five-game season. I mean, really? We're going to go there with an MVP? But baseball had to do this. You understand. That's how it goes. Whatever. Two other things. That revolve around managers. One, I didn't talk about Alex Cora being rehired as the manager of the Red Sox last week, and that's my bad. To me, it was a no-brainer. You weren't going to go with Ron Renneke. You weren't going to go with anybody else outside the organization or even from within, for that matter. You did that with Renneke. It was a stopgap band-aid. Now, remember, they have a new front office with Bloom, and there was a lot of discussion between him. Also, Alex Cora, they flew down to Puerto Rico, had a big meeting about it, and... Reported it back to the owners, John Henry, Tom Werner, etc. And it was only right to bring Cora back. We understand that that incident going back to 2017 happened on the Astros watch. You can look at 2018 too as him being the manager of a World Series champion. Red Sox team that year if there was any shenanigans going on. But as Major League Baseball reported, they didn't have any evidence to suspend Cora further or do any other damage as far as penalties are concerned. So to have Cora back, not only was the right thing to do, it was the only thing to do. So I understand there's going to be a faction out there to be like, ah, he only served 60 games. Oh, it's unfair. Well, his suspension, whether the season was played or not, was going to be to the end of the baseball season. And it just so happened that it was only 60 games. So Cora back in the mix. 
Whereas with Tony LaRussa, it came out this past week that LaRussa was charged with a DUI in February, I believe in Arizona. And remember, he also received one back in 2007 while he was managing the Cardinals. Now, I don't believe it happened in St. Louis, but back then he showed a lot of remorse. He said, it'll never happen again. And here we are, fast forward 13 years later, and it resurfaces. And you have to wonder, will Jerry Reinsdorf, who is, he's not a good friend. Reinsdorf and LaRusso are, are great friends. And he wouldn't have rehired him knowing that his team was that close to getting to a championship. They made it to the playoffs this year. Why not bring him back, have his career come full circle where he started his managerial career once Reinsdorf got the team back in the 80s. And you wonder if there's going to be any outrage or outcry from Chicago, whether it's the media, fans, whomever, on whether or not that they should investigate, look a little deeper into this and whether or not he should be manager of this team. I'm not going to play morality police by any stretch of the imagination, but if he was contrite about this 13 years ago, you got to wonder how many other times had he been drinking and never been caught between then and now. And because of what took place 13 years ago, you would think that, uh uh-uh, I'm not going to get behind the wheel anymore. I'll have a driver. I'll get a cab back to my home, an Uber, whatever. Got to use a little bit of better judgment. Now, again, I'm not judge, jury, and executioner by any stretch of the imagination, but you got to wonder if this is going to have any lasting effect or even a ripple effect. Will he be suspended for this? Conduct detrimental to the team? Or I'm sure there has to be some sort of Major League Baseball substance abuse issue, disciplinary from the commissioner on down. There's still plenty of time between now and the start of a baseball season, so I don't think anything is going to happen at some point here. But you wonder if there's going to be any repercussions from this, whether it's from the commissioner or even from the team itself. So, just something to keep an eye on there. And Tommy Lasorda, the longtime Dodger manager, winner of the 81 and 88 World Series champions before they finally got the piano off the back here in 2020, hospitalized but resting comfortably at the age of 93. Now, I know his health has been declining as of late, and he is 93 years old. So, we know Lasorda and the life that he's lived and what he's done and what he's meant to LA, that organization, even going back to his days at the Brooklyn Dodgers. So let's hope for a speedy recovery for him. And no discipline was handed down to Justin Turner in light of his actions being part of that ceremony on the field with the World Series and him getting COVID and the test, all that that took place. So they probably felt it wasn't necessary. And that's fine. I said my word about it a couple of weeks ago and so be it. Let's wash our hands from that. Now to my hero and zero of the week. My hero of the week goes to Derek Jeter and the front office of the Miami Marlins for hiring the first woman GM in all major professional sports here in North America, Kim Ung, who cut her teeth with the Yankees going way back in the 90s, also became a part of the LA Dodgers when she was working with Joe Torre when he was the manager there. And this goes to show you, she worked with the Yankees when Joe Torre was the manager back then. Cutting her teeth going 20 years back and then finally getting this job. It is historic. It is landmark. And not only that, her being a woman, but she's of Asian descent. So congratulations not only to her, and hopefully that jump starts other organizations to do the same, to have somebody with that power, with that rank of a baseball team, football, basketball, hockey, soccer, you name it, 
Congratulations to Kim. And for the Marlins, Derek Jeter, you're my hero of the week. And my zero of the week is Cavaliers guard Michael Porter Jr. He was pulled over by police late Saturday, early Sunday, I believe, where he was improperly handling a firearm in his vehicle. I don't know how that came about. I don't know why that was the case. Maybe the officer asked him, do you have any weapons in the car? And mentioned that he had a gun and he went to reach for it. And at that point, maybe he was arrested. Who knows? So unfortunately, my guy, Michael Porter Jr., you are my zero of the week. That'll do it for episode 164. I appreciate you guys very much. I truly do for taking the time out to listen to what it is that I have to say about what's going on in the world of sports. So in turn, if you like what you heard, love what you heard, had a few laughs, said this guy Jay Reels, I don't know, he's a little bit off his rocker, but he certainly brings it when it comes to everything that's happening in sports. Please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast because there are so many others out there, not only just sports, but all the others that are, by the day, proliferating throughout the cyber universe. My goal is to increase the visibility of this podcast with all the others that are out there, in turn to generate interest for those outside who aren't familiar with the J Reels podcast. So that means the former or current athlete, the writer, sports blogger, broadcaster, studio host, to have them on to share their experience so I could bless you guys with what they've done on the field, off the field, in the booth, in the press box, etc. Also, if you want to send me a question, comment with some criticism, praise, whatever it may be, you could do so on my social media accounts, whether it's on Instagram at JReels or the JReels Podcast, on Twitter, JReels1, just the number, on Facebook, the JReels Podcast fan page, and then the old-fashioned way by email, the JReels Podcast at gmail.com. Please send whatever you have my way. I'll certainly follow up. I'll be sure to write you guys back as I like to do to those who reach out. And if you want to be a part of this podcast as far as any contributions are concerned, you could do so on my Patreon page, which is www.patreon. That's spelled P as in Paul, A T as in Tom, R E O N as in Nancy.com, slash the J Reels Podcast. Anything that you're willing to put forth will go to the production of this podcast, toward the website, anything that has to do with equipment. As I continue to build this from the ground up, independently operated, hosting, producing, writing, editing, because. This is what I love to do, people. I love to talk sports. It's in the DNA. It's in the blood, as I do each and every week and sometimes twice a week once I get that guest. Whether it's in the world of the diamond, the ice, the gridiron, the hardwood, the golf course, racetrack, tennis court, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels Podcast always comes correct, directed, and full E. From the South Bronx, the South Beach, the South Central, the South Pacific, and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. Until next time on the J Reels Podcast, on the flip, baby.